Well, having just completed an extended series uh, looking at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus and all that he taught them in that letter, today's the day when we get to find out how that church went. Um, So I invite Pastor Glenn to come up now. He's going to speak to us from that first letter in Revelation to the church or the angel in the church in Ephesus. Thank you, Pastor Caroline. Well, this morning meditation is taken from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Revelation chapter 2, 1 to 7. I hope you can have your Bible with you, whether it is a hard copy or digital copy. Turn to Revelation chapter 2, and I want to read from verses 1 to 7. It is it is necessary to me, it's, it's good that you have your Bible opened so that you know that what I'm saying, what I'm preaching is actually from the Word of God. And moreover, in Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, it actually says this in verse 18. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So no adding, no subtracting from this book. And so it will be wonderful if you have your uh, book that I'm going to preach. Chapter 2, 1 to 7. I want to read through first on the words that Jesus have to the church in Ephesus. Verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name and have, gotten, and have not grown weary. Verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Remember the height from you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, this is the first letter out of the seven that Jesus said to the churches in Revelation. The first letter that comes before us is the church located in the city of Ephesus. As Pastor Caroline just mentioned, that we have just completed studying the book of Ephesians together. And so uh, 
we know a little bit about the background, but let me just give you a little bit of it so that when we come to the text, it will be uh, more beneficial. The city of Ephesus is a very important city, commercially, politically, and religiously. Uh, commercially, because of the ideal location, it was noted for its magnificent harbor, and ships came to Ephesus from all over the known world and bring their goods and their wealth. So it was one of the, probably the richest city in Asia Minor uh, at that time. It was also a very important city politically, and because of their past service to the empire of Rome, uh, Ephesus was granted the right to be a free city. And it was given the title Supreme Metropolis of Asia. Uh, this means that they can practice self-government. It means that they could make whatever decisions they wanted to make. It also means that Roman troops were not uh, garrisoned there. So this allowed the city to thrive uh, pretty autonomous in that sense. It was a, a city that is very important commercially, politically, and I think more importantly, religiously, as we have mentioned before, uh, Ephesus contained one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis, or in Greek, Diana, uh, was there. It was a center of mystical cult worship. That temple occupied the skyline. The temple was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet high, and with great folding doors and 127 pillars, marble pillars, and some of them were covered with gold. So people came from everywhere to come to that temple. And Diana was the goddess of sex, goddess of fertility. She was represented by a hideous statue with many breasted women. And the temple was filled with hundreds of temple prostitutes. And the way you worship Diana was to have sexual relations with a temple prostitute. And the temple was also served as a bank. People would bring their possession there for safekeeping. It served as, as a museum for fine art. Art from all over the world was housed in this ancient temple. And if you want to read more about it, as we have already covered in the overview of the uh, book of Ephesians, you have to read Ephesians, I mean, Acts chapter 18, 19, 20. Three chapters that Paul went to that city preached the gospel there, stayed in that city for two and a half years, founded and preached there, along with Timothy being the first pastor there, together with Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, uh, at the early part of the, the time when they were there. And it has been said that the Apostle John, who wrote uh, the book of Revelation 1, 2, 3 John, and as well as the John Gospel, Towards the end of his life, he spent the last years of his life in Ephesus. And it was here that he wrote the Gospel of John and three epistles as well. And according to tradition, again, this is only tradition, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is buried in Ephesus. 
Uh, we don't know whether it's true or not, but it was just a tradition there. And so the church was privileged to hear and know the best of the best in those early days. And here are some of Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. One generation has passed, and 30 to 40 years has elapsed since Paul's time, where we studied the book of Ephesians. And now Jesus said some words to them. I want to divide this section into uh, three points. The first one is Jesus commands them. Jesus has some wonderful words to say about his church. He commands them. And then Jesus uh, counseled them. I, some people like to use the word condemn. I don't think it's condemn. You know? uh, uh, Jesus counseled them because they are something that they have to learn. And then uh, Jesus cautioned them. So commands them, uh, counsel them, and caution them. And it is the second point that I will probably spend the most time. Uh, at, at the third point is, is, is pretty fast in a sense, very short. For the first two points, I'll expand a bit longer. So the first point I want to bring to you from this text is Jesus commands them. Jesus has some very good things to say about the church in Ephesus. In verse 2 and 3, he said, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know you persevere. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. I know that you have tested these people who claim to be apostles but are not and you found them to be false. You have great spiritual discernment. You have persevered. You have endured hardship for my name and you have not grown weary. Now, these are wonderful things that God, uh, Jesus said about the church in Ephesus. And if you unpack it in, in detail, He said, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You cannot tolerate uh, wicked people. You are able to discern the false prophet. You look at those five things. They are all in the Scriptures. Every one of those things is about what is expected of us in our Christian walk. Pertaining to work, I know your deeds, your work. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us, right? Every one of, say, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not that good works will save us, but good works is always the byproduct of our faith. And then Colossians chapter 3 verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Your hard work. And then come the perseverance in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. It says you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. And then hate what is evil. Romans 12, verse 9 say love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And pertaining to testing the Spirit, because there are so many false prophets around, and Jesus command the Ephesians believers for being able to discern that. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, by the same author, John also says, Dear friends, do not believe in every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Deeds, hard work, perseverance, spiritual discernment, and all these things 
are part of what is expected of us in our Christian work. Hard work is speak of intense work coupled with toil and trouble. It tells that this church was serving the Lord fervently. They were literally working their fingers to the bone. And they persevere. The persevere, the word perseverance is steadfast endurance. It tells that this church was working in spite of opposition. As you read Acts chapter 18, 19, 20, you know that they faced a lot of opposition. The people in, in Ephesus did not appreciate Paul and the rest, or the believers there, for their zeal for the Lord. And they opposed them publicly and physically. But these people endured the opposition and the persecution, and they continued to serve the Lord faithfully in spite of everything thrown against them. And so Jesus commanded them on that. And they were spiritually very discerning. They test the Spirit. Remember in Acts chapter 20, before Paul left the church there, uh, he actually did warn them. In chapter 20 of Acts, verses 29, 30, and 31, some of the words that Paul says to the elders before he left Ephesus. He says this in verse 29, I know that after I leave, Paul say, salvage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, Paul says. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And so here, true enough, after Paul left, heresy started to abound in the church. But the church in Ephesus was able to discern that. They were good because they know the word of God and they were able to discern and not allow them to infiltrate and affect and influence them. And then if you look at verse 3, uh, Paul summarized the commendation by saying that you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. They have not grown weary. So this is a church that has been carrying the Lord, enduring much affliction, much opposition, laboring to the point of exhaustion, and they have done so without any signs of weariness. They were a very steadfast congregation, and what they did, they did for the sake of the Lord. And they are a church that deserves to be commended. You know, as a pastor for many years, I have seen many Christians come and go. I used to pastor uh, a youth pastor of a church that has so many youths that many of them have disappeared from the scene. They no longer attend church. Uh, they no longer believe in Jesus. Some have become atheists, a well-spoken atheist, uh, come and go. It's Christian faith is, is, is very long. From the day you accepted the Lord to the day you die, it could be 70 years, could be 60 years, could be 50 years, I don't know. But it's a long race to persevere as a believer. It is not a, a hundred meter dash. It is a marathon. John Stott, in one of his books, he says this. He said, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. 
For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow Him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. And the result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism, unquote. But that's not the case in, in Ephesians, in, in the church in Ephesus. They persevere. Martin Luther said, a religion that gives nothing, that costs nothing, and suffers nothing, it is actually worth nothing. Nothing. Before I, one of the, the Christians that influenced me the most, one of it among many, is uh, Charles Start, C.T. Start. I remember in 1993, I was reading his book, uh, and, and he has such a profound impact in my life uh, that I couldn't sleep sometime because I was just thinking so deeply on, on those words that he says. City start on No Sacrifice True Great, uh, a, a book written by someone about his life. Just an incredible uh, man, the founder of the mission organization WEC, W-E-C. I mentioned before a number of times about this tiny little book that he wrote called Chocolate Soldier. Actually, you can download it for free uh, from the internet. Chocolate Soldier. And I love it so much because it talks about what Christian heroism is all about. Uh, that so many times I feel that Christian has become uh, so soft in the sand. And he says that every true soldier is a hero. A soldier without heroism is a chocolate soldier. Every true Christian is a soldier of Christ. A hero par excellence. Braver than the bravest. Scorning the soft seductions of peace and her off repeated warnings against hardship, disease, danger, and death, whom he counts among the bosom friends. The otherwise Christian is a chocolate Christian, dissolving in water and melting at the smell of the fire. Sweeties they are, bonbons, lollipops, living their lives on a glass dish or in a cardboard box, each clad in his soft clothing, a little frill white paper to preserve his dear little delicate constitutions. God never, C.T. Sartre say, God never was a chocolate manufacturer and never will be. God's men are always heroes. And in scripture, you can trace their giant foot tracks down the sands of time. And the the church in Ephesus, they resemble that. They were no ordinary lollipop or bonbon sweeties. They are no chocolate soldier. They are heroes. They were strong despite the opposition, despite of any challenges that you can pose against them. They will be there marching against it until the end. And so Jesus commands this church because they have such great qualities about them that that has been built over 
over time with Apostle Paul, with Apollos, Aquila, uh, and Priscilla, and Apostle John, all were there, Timothy, to build them. So Ephesus was orthodox in theology, in practice, and in service. And yet, something was missing that Jesus wanted to counsel them. If not addressed, would ruin their like-bearing capacity. So let me move to the second point now. Jesus commands them in verse 3 and 4. And then in verse 5, Jesus counseled them. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Jesus says this in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. They didn't lose the love. They didn't, this is not lost love. This is left love. Forsake, to leave, depart. It stresses an act for which one is personally responsible. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, you are the church that had everything right except the main thing. You had everything right except the main thing. You have forsaken your first love. In other versions, it says you have forsaken your first love. And I will say you have forsaken the love you had at first. It's like cooking, isn't it? You have all everything right, but you got the main thing wrong. You got this ingredient right and that ingredient right, the main bout of it, you got it wrong. And and Jesus is saying, Well, you are the church that had everything right except the main thing, and that is your love, your first love. They seem to have left this love, this first love. They have moved away from their original position of devotion and fervor for the Savior by a gradual departure. You're still doing the things, but the passion, the motivation is no longer there. They came to put service for the Lord ahead of love, ahead of devotion, ahead of fellowshipping with Him. It's just mechanical. Unlike the Thessalonians believers, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul commands the Thessalonians Christians, about their work. But their work is not just mechanical. It's not just duty. It is flow out from a love relationship with Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul commanded the Thessalonians. He said, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work, your labor, your endurance is produced by faith, prompted by love, and inspired by hope. And so it is consistent. It's not just the mechanical external part of it, but it is flowing out from a genuine abiding fellowship with Jesus Christ. Their labor gradually came to be merely mechanical the things that they were responsible to do. But the Savior wants it to be the result of the abiding life, the result of an intimate walk 
through the Spirit of God. They have left their first love. They have not lost it. They have left their first love. They focus on the form instead of the substance of our faith. Sometimes we lost our first love. We're still doing whatever we do. We become infatuated with knowledge instead of holiness. We become comfortable with the holy instead of being in awe of who God is. We lose our evangelistic zeal and see the world as our enemy instead of our mission field. We become insensitive to the Holy Spirit. We become content with what we are instead of being driven to become more and more like Jesus Christ. We allow other things to sit on the throne of our lives and we relegate Christ to a lesser place of importance. We begin to love something or someone more than we love Jesus Christ. And the church of Ephesus was active in all the external, but they're they're doing out, serving out of a sense of duty and not out of fervent love for him. I could think of a story in the New Testament that resembled this. Do you know who is that? In the story of Mary and Martha. The story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. Jesus and the 12 disciples, they were invited for lunch. And Martha was very busy preparing lunch for the 13 adults. Lots of garlic to chop onions, potatoes to boil, bread, rolling the bread, flour and all that. Thirteen grown-up men, plus Mary, Martha and the brother Lazarus. So a good 16 people for lunch. And here while Martha was chopping garlic and all that, rolling the chapati and roti, and here Mary was sitting there talking to Jesus spending time with Jesus, and she had it all. She had enough of it, and she just couldn't take it anymore. She went in and she came to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Come and tell her to, to, to help me. When I read that, I thought indirectly he's blaming Jesus. Come on, don't talk to Mary. Just, just release her to, and get her to come. And indirectly is, is, is telling Jesus off in some sense. And all that Jesus said was, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus is saying, don't worry about lunch. Don't worry. Come and spend time with me. Lunch will come out of it. When we're all hungry, we're all maybe chipping, roll our sleeve and start cooking. I don't know. Uh, but the point of the matter is the fellowship, the first love, abiding in Christ should be our priority. And then the work when we do, it flows out of that passion and that love. Just like when you're in love with someone, you'll do anything for that person. You will. Think back to when you first fall in love, when you first get married. You'll buy things that you will have no money you save all, you do anything for that person. In Mark chapter 3, when Jesus chose the 12 disciples, interestingly, he said something. He, he, 
Mark recorded that Jesus went up on the mountainside. Mark chapter 3, okay, if you want to check it out. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Mark, Mark said, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he called to him those he wanted. He called the 12 disciples. And they came to him. And here, it tells us why Jesus called them. In verse 14, it says this, He appointed 12. Why? So that they might be with him. Number one. And number two, that he might send them out to preach. Two things. Jesus called it that. So that they might be with him, and then he can send them out to preach the good news. To be with him and to send them out to preach and to cast out demons. And the order here is very significant. Number one is to be with him first. Then and only walk with him first and then the work. Come to Jesus first and then go. The first order of his appointment was their fellowship being with the Lord Jesus, with their ministry in the world being the product of that fellowship. Work come after walk with the Lord. First love. Jesus says, you have left your first love. You have so much of the work, so much of this, but it is flowing out just from mere mechanical duty, but the love motivation is no longer there. First love is fervent love. It is emotional, it moves the heart, it causes the soul to thrill, it is not cold, it is not dead, it is not dusty, it is not dry, it is alive, it is vibrant. Just like when you first fell in love with your spouse, your husband, your, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your love was fervent, was emotional, it made you write letters, say things that you wouldn't you know, normally say. And can you remember when you first saved? When you first became Christian, you were excited, you were fervent, you read the Bible, you pray, you attend prayer meeting, you were passionate, you, you were excited about listening to sermon. Can you remember how you prayed, you worship, you witness, you pull out your guitar, you string, you sing, you worship the Lord. Remember the emotion when you thought of what He had done for you? That is fervent love. That is first love. First love is also extravagant. Love will make you spend money for things you can't afford. Buy that special person something you couldn't afford, but you knew they would love. Just like Mary, the story of Mary and her alabaster box of ointment. She just poured it out all. Lasted maybe a few hours, the, the, the smell. But he's wanted to express her love for Jesus, that before you die, I want to anoint you. I want to bless you. Real love never draws lines. Real love will give anything at any time for the object of that love. And can you remember when Jesus had absolute control of your heart and you would not dare tell him no? Fervent love, first love, extravagant love. And Jesus said, you have lost it. Not lost it, sorry. You have left that first love. And the church in Ephesus, from all outward appearances, was a very spiritual church, for it was certainly a church that was very active in the work of God. 
They toiled for the Lord. They endured much opposition. They were doctrinally sound. And they took strong stand against the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Heresy. Nevertheless, Jesus says something was not right. Something was hard to detect because only Christ, only Jesus can know what is internal. We can't. The Lord who knows our hearts as well as our outward deeds counsels Ephesus to do three things that were desperately needed to re-establish their closeness and their walk with Jesus before they lose their witness. Three things you must do. Jesus says in verse 5 and 6. He said, Remember the height from you have fallen. Number one, remember. Remember, Jesus said, Remember the height from you have. Remember, recall back, way back, what it was used to be in your relationship with me. Has your Christian life lost some of its excitement and joy? Are you finding your Christian work rather boring and dull, even to the extent of drudgery? Is it just a routine of listening to sermon, reading the Bible, prayer? Is your Christian duty to do? As you still do? Have you lost the joy of the Lord? Maybe because we have left the position of devotion and occupation with Christ. So Jesus is saying, remember, recall back your early days. And then he, he said, repent. Not just remember, he said, repent. In verse 5, remember the height from you have fallen? Repent. Repent means to change the mind or purpose, to change one's decisions. It means to recognize one's previous decisions, opinion or condition as wrong and to accept and move forward towards a new and right path in its place. Jesus said, remember, repent. And the third one is return. Return. Repent and do the things you did at first. Return back to the to do the things you did at first. I was thinking, what does it mean by do the things you did at first? I think this is certainly not a call to more Christian service or renewed Christian activity. They have plenty of that in the church. Then what does the Lord really mean and how does this apply to us? I think first simply means first in time, place or, or rank. It clearly looks back to the beginning of a Christian's life. Beginning of your Christian life, what is it about your first Christian life, about the joy? To me, it's the joy of reading God's Word, the joy of prayer, the joy of coming to church, attending fellowship, be with Christian, singing, praise the Lord, abiding with the Lord. I think it includes all these things about Bible study, reading the scripture, meditation, memorizing, fellowshipping with believers, being occupied with Christ and refocusing all of our life on Him. And I think that is what it means by returning back and do the things you did at first. So here Jesus is saying, you have left your first love, what I want you to do is remember 
the height from you have fallen, repent and return. Come back. And again, when I think about the, the, the gospel story, I could think of a parable of a person who did that. Probably one of the most uh, popular or famous parables in the gospel, in the Bible, has to be the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. All three points, remember, repent, return, is what the prodigal son experienced in his life. In verse 17 in chapter 15 of Luke, it says this, he said, when he came to his senses, after he swindled all his money, when he came to his senses, he said, ah, oh, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. He suddenly remembered the good old days, good time that he was with the father. And then verse 18, he repent. He said, I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. He repent. And he rehearsed in his mind, this is what he's going to say to his father. But when you read further down, when he actually met the father, he didn't actually get around to see, say the second part. He only said the first part. The, his father never even allowed him to say the second part of it. That I'm no longer worried to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Even though he rehearsed in his mind to say this, but he never got around to say this because his father's love and embrace was so great that he doesn't even need to say that in order to convince his father to receive him back. He need not to do that. And then he returned. In verse 20, he got up and he went to his father. Remember, repent and return. And then his father embraced him back. Left the first love. Oswald Chamber, one of my uh, favorite devotional authors, I mentioned many times before, in one of his uh, devotions, he says this. He said, Today we have substituted doctrinal belief for personal belief. And that is why so many people are devoted to causes and so few are devoted to Jesus Christ. People do not really want to be devoted to Jesus, but only to the cause he started. Jesus Christ is deeply offensive to the educated minds of today, to those who only want him to be their friend and who are unwilling to accept him in any other way. Our Lord's primary obedience was to the will of his Father, not to the needs of people. The saving of people was the natural outcome of his obedience to the Father. If, I'm, if I am devoted so, solely to the cause of humanity, I will soon be exhausted and come to the point where my love will waver and stumble. Is it not true? How many people burn out, tired and sick of this and that is simply because they are just devoted to the cause, to the task, to the job, rather than to Jesus, Jesus Christ. But if I love, also Chambers say, if I love Jesus Christ personally and passionately, I can serve humanity, even though people may treat me like a doormat. 
The secret of a disciple's life is devotion to Jesus Christ. And the characteristic of that life is its seeming insignificance and its meekness. And yet it is like a grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies. It will spring up and change the entire landscape. Return back to our first love. Jesus commands them. Jesus counsels them because Jesus knows that they have left their first love. Whatever that they are actually doing is actually driven by duty and just mechanical, but not out of a devotion and passion in their heart. And finally, Jesus cautions them. Jesus cautions them in verse 5 again. Remember the height from you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious or overcomers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. How sad, isn't it? Here Jesus is saying if they don't repent, if they don't return to their first love, He will remove the fire of His Spirit from their midst. Oh well, you may still have your buildings, you may still have your programs, your calendars, church calendars may be full, and all the externals, you may still be able to attract new people with pretty facilities and clever how-to sermons, but the power of God will be missing. God will take His hand off the church and leave us to go through the motions. What a tragic picture this paints for us. A group of people going through the motions of Christianity without the living God in their midst. Could there be anything more empty? Could there be anything more sad? And therefore Jesus cautioned them. Return to your first love. Remember, repent, return. Rejuvenate back our love for Jesus. And the work will take care of itself. The work will flow out of it. The devotion to Jesus will come first. And then the rest will fall into place. That is our goal. That is what we want to do. That is what we want to excite you to love Jesus, to go back to the fundamentals, basic spiritual disciplines of reading God's Word, of prayer, of meditation on God's Word, memorizing God's Word. Let this come back to you once again. Keep serving the Lord diligently. And with perseverance, rekindle your love for Jesus and then be an overcomer. Be an overcomer. Persevere. Rekindle your first love and be an overcomer. C.S. Lewis has a very interesting quote. He said, The long, 
dull, monotonous years of middle-age prosperity or middle-age adversity are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-age prosperity or middle-age adversity are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. And some of us, maybe we need to return back to the Lord and re- rekindle our first love for Jesus. Find my, I, myself, as I prepare this sermon, I ask myself very heart-searching question for myself. I, I know, I know, I may have loved, uh, left my first love. Sometimes the work takes precedence over, over the, the passion and the love for Jesus. That whatever I do, I must do it for Jesus. I know. I used to pick up my guitar and sing and worship the Lord. I don't do nowadays. I used to occupy my time with other things now. And I need to, need to recognize that do I read the book, do I read the Bible, do I study the Bible, do I prepare the sermon? Is it just for the sake of preparing sermon? Is it reading books for materials for my, for my sermon or do I really enjoy doing what I'm doing? and worshipping the Lord. Let me close with this. Uh, it's no, uh, I mentioned many times before, when I was growing up, one of my uh, favorite singers was Keith Green. He died in 1982, even before I became a Christian. He died at the age of 28. And uh, he wrote a book called No Compromise that has uh, deeply impacted my life as well. But he was this song that he wrote, this song called My Eyes Are Dry, there is a short chorus, and he sing and pray. It's always moved my heart when I listen listening to this song. Let me read to you the words of this song, and I then I'll pray and I'll close. My eyes are dry. The song says, "My eyes are dry, Lord. My faith is old. My heart is hot, and my prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you." And dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up, Lord, with oil and wine. The oil is you and your spirit of love. Please wash me anew with the wine of your love, with the wine of your blood. Please wash me anew with the wine of your blood. I pray that this will be your prayer today, just that I have. I make this my prayer as I prepare this sermon to ask the Lord to rekindle our first love for Jesus. Um, Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for loving us. We are your bride and you are preparing us to meet you and you counsel us. You speak to us and you want us to, to correct when we go astray. We thank you for your love. Lord, we recall back those days, early days of our Christian life. We were excited. We were fervent love for you. We love to read your words. We memorize your word. We listen to speaker. We sing. We worship. Uh, somehow, some of us, we have lost the spark. We have just go through uh, a mechanical part of it without really feeling much. We lost the zeal for you. Uh, maybe we have been bef- we have been knocked down because of some disappointment 
or some crisis in our lives, Lord, we pray today uh, we return back to you. Let the prodigal son return to the father. And the wonderful story in that parable is the father every day was looking out, waiting for his return. And when he returns, the father ran towards him, embraced him. That he didn't even have a chance to say those things that he wanted to say. He only completed half of it because he need not say the rest. He knew the father would welcome him back. Lord, today we want to return back to you. Rekindle our love, Lord. Like the song of what Keith Green say, my eyes are dry. Uh, some of us, our faith is old. Uh, our heart is becoming so hard. Uh, our prayers are cold. Nothing penetrates, Lord. We listen to thousands, hundreds of sermons each week. We listen to praise songs. It doesn't penetrate anymore. It just becomes a routine. Routine. Lord, we ask that your, you perform an extraordinary surgery in our hearts today, that we will love Jesus. We'll come back to the heart of the gospel. We don't want to do everything right and lose out on the main thing. The main thing is the main thing. We want to make the main thing the main things. Lord, we want to come back to devotion to Jesus Christ. And then the work will take care of itself. We want to be a church that loves you, to love Jesus. So speak to us. Soften our hearts with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew, Lord, this morning with the wine of your love. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me see, say the word of benediction and bless you before I invite you to sing this beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace. May the Lord walk beside you to comfort you. May the Lord walk above you to watch over you. May the Lord walk, may the Lord walk behind you to keep you safe. And may the Lord walk, walk before you to show you the way. Amen. Saved a wretch like me I once was lost But now I'm found Was blind But now I see T'was grace that taught my heart fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed my chains are gone I've been set free my God my sin
has promised good to me His word, my hope, secures He will my shield and portion be As long as life But God who 